You can be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, chapter 19. We're going to get there in just a moment. We're in the midst of a series called The Last Words, or Last Words. And we're talking about the final words that Jesus spoke on the cross before he died and went into the tomb and three days later rose again from the grave. And we are looking at, there are seven sayings, and over the next few weeks, as we lead up to Easter, we're going to look at those sayings and ask the question, how are they relevant to us and what's the significance of them? And they each word, you have to understand, had a weighty significance to them. That they are specifically talked about by the writers of the gospel because there's something significant about them. And one of the things that we have to also remember is, is that they are written here for us to understand what was happening in the final moments of Jesus' life on this earth. Jesus would have been on the cross somewhere around six hours. And in that six hours, we have seven sayings that are recorded for us in Scripture. Now, we aren't sure that this is the only things he said. In fact, he may have said other things from the cross that day, but these are the seven things that are recorded for us. We know for sure these seven things were said. And so as we look at them each week, we're going to ask the question, how does that impact our understanding of who God is? And in turn, how does that impact how we understand how we live in light of that? So John chapter 19, starting in verse 25, says this. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Just a little side note, I don't know if you all know this or not, but apparently Mary was a very popular name during that time. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, I want to be real honest with you. I don't, I don't know. I've thought back on this. I don't think so. I don't think that I've done a full series of messages in my almost 18 years of being a pastor on these seven sayings of the cross. Uh, I know I've done sermons about the sayings on the cross, about individual ones. But as I began to look at it this week, I don't know that I've ever done a full sermon on this particular passage. And part of the reason for that is because at first glance, when I read this particular passage, it doesn't seem to have kind of the weightier theological elements that the other statements from the cross have. I mean, we think about last week, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's a weighty, deep subject. You think about next or a couple of weeks when we have our family worship together in two weeks and celebrate the Lord's Supper on that day. We're going to talk about the passage where he looks at one of the criminals and says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a weighty theological. You can dive into that. Or in a few weeks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or it is finished as he's finishing his time on the cross. All of those are theologically deep and weighty and you can mine stuff out of that. When you read this you're like, okay, it's just kind of like a break in the action, a family d- issue that's happening here that he's taking care of right before the final moments come. 
And so over the last week, as I've kind of dove into this, as I've looked at this passage of Scripture, what I've come to realize is there is much more than I knew when I began reading this in this passage. Now, we can all recognize, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the emotional nature of what's here. Anne-Marie was talking about it, the emotional goodbye that is happening between Jesus and his mom, the taking care of her. But I think there are even some deeper things happening here that we have to stop and pause and think about. Because the question that I begin to ask this week as I thought about this particular passage is this. Why is this here? Why did John decide to include this particular scene in his gospel? Because the thing about the Bible is when the writers of the Bible wrote, they weren't trying to fill out a word count, right? This is not a student in class that has to get eight pages of material written, and he's only got six, and so he's trying to enrich, you know, enlarge the font and trying to get extra fluff in there. And you read the paper, and you're like, wait a minute, I think I've read that paragraph already on page two. They were economical with their words and they were trying to get as much as they could in as little space as possible because they didn't have lots of ways to disperse it. It was a very small amount they could put. And so if John includes it, then it's important. The other question I ask is, why did Jesus wait to the cross to do this? Never thought about that. I mean, I just think, I just wonder, wouldn't this have been a better conversation like two days before Hey, John, just got a hey, quick thing for you. Like, it's going to go south in the next couple of days. I mean, Jesus knew it was coming, right? He's been talking about his death. He's been talking about going to Jerusalem. He's talking about going to Jerusalem and not coming back. He had the Lord's Supper with his disciples gathered around, and he tells them that I'm about to be arrested. It's about to go down. I'm going to be killed. And they're like, no, no, no. We would never let that happen. He's like, no, it's going to happen. You're going to deny me. Somebody's going to betray me. You're all going to run away. It's going to happen. Wouldn't have that time been a good time to say, hey, you know what? Hey, John, I've got a little something for you. Can you take care of my mom for me, man? Hey, Mary, I just want you to know some bad things are going to happen in the next few days. John's going to be the one to take care of you. In fact, when you think about the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, this is the only one that didn't have to be said on the cross. The one we said last week, Father, forgive them. They're literally forgiving the people that are at his feet gambling for his clothes. Now, spread out to us as well, but in the immediate context, it's those people. It had to be said from the cross. A couple of weeks, we're going to talk about, you will be with me in paradise. He is literally talking to somebody else on the cross. That couldn't have been uttered somewhere else. When he tells them that he's thirsty, that's a prophecy being fulfilled. When he says, why have you forsaken me? That's the result of prophecy being fulfilled. When he says to the Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, he is literally giving up his life in that moment. It is at the cross that that is happening. And when he says it is finished, it is only because the accomplished work of his death on the cross that he can say those words. This statement, woman, here's your Son, son, here's your mother. These words are the only words that didn't have to be said on the cross. And so this week as I've studied this, I've asked the question, then why is it here and why did he say it at this moment? And as I've investigated, as I've prayed about it, as I looked at it, I think there is an explanation here. You see, we talk a lot about the physical agony that Jesus went through on the cross. I did that last week. I had some people in the hallway stop me and tell me it's hard to even listen to that. 
about the physical agony, the spikes being driven, the crown of thorns. We didn't even talk about that last week. The crown of thorns, the being spit upon, the, the, that whole physical nature. But we talk about that. If you remember, those of you that remember The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie that was rated R simply because they depicted the crucifixion as it probably was. In a couple of weeks, and people talk about this all the time, we'll talk about the spiritual agony that was happening on the cross. The separation that happened between father and son for the first time in eternity that father and son were separated. And they were separated because God was pouring out his wrath on the sins of the world and putting it all onto one person, onto Jesus, his only son. And he was putting it there and Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? That he was feeling the spiritual anguish of your sin and mine in that moment on the cross. And we talk about that. But one of the things that we don't talk about enough, I don't think, one of the things that I think we miss when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus is the emotional agony that he went through on the cross. Not just that he had been betrayed by his closest friends, that they had run away. We'll find out in this passage only one was there of the 12 disciples. But this moment, as he is looking down at his mom, looking at her, grieving in her eyes, seeing the hurt she was experiencing. And there's a clue in the passage right before it that I think triggers this response from Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles open there to John chapter 19, verse 25, we're going to actually back back up to verse 16. I want us to read that part about what happens at the crucifixion. And I'm going to give you a specific thing that happens right before he says this that I think will turn our discussion in a different direction. It says, then he handed him over to be crucified. That's Pilate, that's the powers to be. They handed Jesus over to be crucified. And they took Jesus away. And carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which is Aramaic, is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. And it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was right near the city. You could almost see it from the inside the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write that. Don't write the king of the Jews. Write, he said he was the king of the Jews. Or he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. And here's the part I want us to think about for a minute. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Now we're going to leave it there for a minute because I want to talk about this particular incident that happened. One of the things that we have to understand about the crucifixion of Jesus is that almost every picture you've ever seen that tries to depict the crucifixion of Jesus is inaccurate because they always cover up Jesus in some way. And when Jesus was crucified, he would have been completely naked on the cross. You add that to the humiliation of what had already happened, and he is not just out there on a cross partially clothed for the world to see. He is literally struggling for his life completely naked on the cross. And while he's naked on the cross in the midst of all that is going on, the soldiers at his feet are gambling for clothing. 
Now, most Jewish males would have had five pieces of clothing on. Now, they counted all kinds of stuff as clothing. So like the belt counted as clothing. So the thing that held it together, the, the over kind of thing was the counted as clothing. And so when it says that the four of them had divided his clothing, they, most people think, most scholars think that what has happened here is they have divided those four outer pieces of clothing with themselves. And so it's not that they've torn it apart or anything. They've just said, hey, you take the belt and, and you get that and you, yeah, you got that. And they get to the final piece, which would have been the undergarment, if you will, the tunic, the seamless tunic that would have been a special thing for him, something that he would have had that, you know, it talks about when he washes the disciples, he takes everything off but that, and he hikes that up and goes and begins it. That's not like underwear that we wear, but it would have been the undergarment for them. And here's the thing that's significant about that. Now, we don't, this is a little bit of speculation, but I think it's informed speculation from Jewish history. Most of the time, Men were given their undergarment, their special undergarment, the tunic, by their mothers when they left the house. And so, in this moment when Jesus is crucified on the cross, hanging naked there with them gambling for his clothes, he looks down and they're deciding who's going to get the specially given tunic that his mother gave to him when he went out on ministry. I want you to think for a moment about the emotional part of that for Mary. This is a significant emotional moment. There's a special bond between mother and child. There just is. God made it that way. It's put into us. And imagine Mary's love for her child, her oldest child. And not just oldest child, her perfect child, literally her perfect child. I know some siblings think, well, you treat that sibling like they're perfect. Jesus was perfect. Now, they may have some, that may have some, you know, things that weren't as great, like you can't get on to your son because he's always right and perfect, right? Remember when they found him, like, what are you doing? You scared us to death. He goes, where else am I supposed to be? I'm teaching. I'm spreading. I'm preaching the word of God. What else do you want me to do? All right. Don't you think about this particular moment. Mary is there watching her oldest son brutally beaten, disfigured, naked on a cross. And while that's happening, four Roman soldiers are gambling for the clothing that she made for him. Jesus looks down upon that scene and he sees a heartbroken mother. We sometimes forget that Jesus, yes, was 100% divine. He was God Almighty in the flesh, but he was also 100% human. And as his mother's heart breaks for him, his heart breaks for her. Mary had spent her all of her adult life taking care of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. We know he had brothers and sisters. What we also know is they're not here. Most people believe, we know that at this point, his brothers and sisters did not believe him to be the Son of God. They did not believe him to be the Messiah. And they probably thought Mary was crazy to think she, he was. We know exactly where they are, but we know they're not at the cross. And she's surrounded by women that are close to her. She's surrounded by her group of women as they're there. Joseph is out of the picture. The only thing we can assume is that we don't see him since Jesus 12 years old in the Bible. Joseph is 
probably dead by this moment. And so Mary is a widow who has lost her oldest son now that was supposed to take care of her. And her other children, if they haven't disowned her, they have walked away from this because of her devotion to her oldest. And in that society, a widow had a very difficult life. It's not like today widows have it a whole lot better, but they do have more opportunity to take care of themselves than they did in Mary's time. Now, it was all throughout the law of God that they were to help orphans and widows, but that didn't mean that it always happened. And so Mary is thinking about her future. She is thinking about what's going ahead of her, and she is thinking, I have lost my son, the son who God gave to me, the son who God told me was the Messiah, the one that would save his people from his sins, the people that would save Israel. And right now he is hanging on a cross and it looks like it's not going to change. Like I've been around him enough, Mary thought, that she could see that God was going to do something, that God was going to change something, that he was going to come off the cross, that something was going to happen. Miraculous things follow Jesus around. But in this moment, it appeared that miracles weren't coming. And as she's grieving over the loss of her son, she's grieving over the loss of her hope. She's grieving over the loss of her purpose. She's grieving over all that she did to protect him, to go to Egypt, to take care of him and Joseph, of the ridicule she had, of the scorn she had, of the way that she was treated in the community because she had a child from God. Remember that whole story about Christmas? From God that did not come before her and Joseph were married and the crowd around her would not have been supportive of that. I think it's interesting. When you think about widows in the Bible, one of the widows that comes to mind comes from the Old Testament. The story of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. And Naomi was the one that was married to her husband, a famine hit, and so they go down into a foreign land. And while they're in the foreign land, her two husbands marry foreign women. And then her husband, Naomi's husband, and her two sons all die. And it's just her and the two girls. And she tells the two girls, you go marry whoever you want to. You're still young. Go find you a husband. I'm going back home because I'm a foreigner in this land. I won't be able to make it. Perhaps they'll take care of me when I get back home. And one of the girls says, okay, Orpah, I'll be, I'll be glad. I'm gone. I'm going to find another husband. But Ruth says, no. Naomi says, no, don't go. Don't come with me. It'll be a miserable life, a terrible life. She goes, I'm coming. Where you go, I will go. Your people, my people, your God will be my God. So she follows her home. But here's the interesting thing. We won't tell that whole story. When she gets home, Naomi gets back. Some people are excited to see her. And they walk up to her and they say, hey, Naomi, you're back. It's great to see you. And she says, my name is not Naomi. Does anybody remember what she named herself? Mara which means bitter. Now, we hear it as a formal name. When she walked up to people, they're like, Naomi, you're back. She goes, I'm not Naomi, I'm bitter. And she says that to everyone around because her life has been ruined. Here's an interesting little tidbit, okay? Does anybody know what the New Testament version of Mara is? Mary. Mary's name means bitter. And in this moment, it would be perfectly understandable if she was embodying the meaning of her name. A widow who's lost her other son, her son, her purpose in life. And in the midst of Jesus seeing that, he looks at his disciple John beside her and says, take care of her. 
he looks at his mother and he says, this is your son. John himself was a guy whose life had been radically changed by Jesus. And Jesus knew that Mary was going to need somebody to take care of her, that believed in him, believed in her, believed like her, that could provide for her, that could help her, that would shelter her, that would help her through the next few days, the next few years. Now, Jesus knows, here's what's remarkable to me, Jesus knows that this isn't the end, that there's something coming on the other side. But he also knows that over the next three days, she is going to need emotional support. And then when he ascends to the Father, she's going to need financial support. Jesus is concerned about his mother in this very moment, at this very time, what she is going through at that moment. The same is true of John. Now, John never refers to himself as John in the book he wrote. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, which is an interesting title because other people had a different nickname for John. He and his brother, James and John, together were known, does anybody know this, as the Sons of Thunder. You don't get the name Sons of Thunder by being good boys. Right? Nobody says, boy, those boys are like thunder. And they mean they are sweet young men. Right? In fact, they're the ones that got their mom to go to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, when you get to be king, here's the thing. I want my boys on both sides. They're also the ones that over in Luke chapter 9, they went into a Samaritan town. The people there would not accept Jesus. And James and John come to Jesus and say, We got a solution. What about we just call fire from heaven to destroy them all? Like we could Sodom and Gomorrah this place like right now, Jesus. Let's go. Jesus is like, That's probably not the best thing to do, all right? And yet, by the time we get to this writing, John is probably in his 70s or 80s. He's probably writing this while he's on the island of Patmos as he's getting ready to write Revelation. Or as a part of that, he's collecting all these stories. He's an older man as he's writing it. And when he looks back on the life of Jesus, the only thing that he can use to describe himself is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was overwhelmed by the love of Christ, specifically in moments like these. John spent over half his book talking about the last week of Jesus' life. And as he does and describes it, he is describing a tender moment here when he recognized the full extent the love of Jesus had for the people in his life. So why is this here? I think it's here because Jesus intentionally chose this moment to demonstrate how big he cares for us. His love and care for us is in the big things, but it's almost always, always is in the smallest details as well. In fact, what we know from this passage of Scripture is that Jesus cares for every detail of your life. I just want to make a confession to you as your pastor. I don't always operate that way. I operate with the idea that Jesus cares about the big stuff in my life. He cares about my salvation. He cares about my sins. He cares about that being forgiven. He cares about preparing a place for me in heaven that I can go live with all my friends that were on here on earth that got saved and I can get up there and live eternity with in a perfect place. Like, I think he cares about the big stuff. But I often think that he, it's not that he doesn't care about the little stuff, that I don't need to bother him with the little stuff. That there are bigger things going on. Like, I don't need to tell him about my first world problems. Like, what does it matter if I've got a runny nose today when there are things happening around the globe that are of a major significance? He's got bigger things to deal with. 
But the reality is, Scripture tells us, that He cares about every single detail of our lives. Yes, He cares about forgiving our sins. Yes, He cares about all of the big things. But He also cares about every detail of our lives. We said this before. It says in the Scripture that He knows the very numbers of hair on our head. He knows things about us that we will never know. He knows specifics about us that we can't understand. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And He is intimately involved in the details of our lives. And here's the thing that we have to understand about God. And we're going to talk about a big theological concept for a minute. And I know that's dangerous this close to lunch, but I want us to get there for a second, all right? Because the reason that he can care about the biggest things in our lives and every detail of our lives is because of a word that people use to describe God that he has, the word they phrase they use is the infinitude of God. It just means he is infinite and has no limits. There is nothing that limits our God. And so he can be concerned about every detail of your life and every single person on this planet. He can be concerned about the intimate details of their lives at the same time. And it does not distract him or make him tired in any way. He is infinite in his power. He is infinite in his presence. He is infinite in his knowledge. He is inexhaustible. You cannot make God tired. There's some of you in this room right now that are tired. Some of you weren't tired when I started speaking, but you've suddenly gotten tired while I'm speaking. Some of you were tired when you got here. Some of you aren't over daylight savings time yet. Some of you have had a terrible weekend. But we all know we hit, we talk about it, right? I've hit the wall. Like I'm done. I'm tired. I don't want to do anything else. I just want to be God never hits that moment. He is inexhaustible. So he can literally think about every situation that is happening on the planet at this moment, and it does not make him tired at all. He is eternal. That means we can't waste his time. He created time. He controls time. Time does not control him. We don't understand that. Because we live on a clock-based time system where at 8.15 on Sunday morning, service starts. I better have my sermon ready to go or it's too late. 10.30, if the first sermon was terrible, i got to have it ready by 10.30 to be good. Like, we live on time crunches. Many of you right now are looking at your watches and thinking about the next appointment or what's after that or what's this afternoon, the practice you have to get to, the place you have to go. Can we get lunch in? Are we going to have to change here? What do we have to be back for? Where do we have to go? What do we have to get done tonight so that we can get ready for the day tomorrow? What can we do for here? How can we get that? Do we have the laundry done? Do we have the house picked up? Do we have that taken care of? Oh, we got a birthday party. Do I have a present for that? And we are thinking about all that's happening in our lives all the time. God is not controlled by time at all he controls it he is outside of it time doesn't hinder him so when you go to the lord you are never wasting his time because you can't jesus cares for every detail of your life which means you can trust every detail of your life with jesus Trust Him with everything going on in your life. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. And if it just ended there, we would think, man, he's talking about God's glory, that he is above us, and that is true. But look what it says after that. Because of that, or this is the way we humble ourselves, we cast all our cares on him because he cares about you. You know what the word all means? All. Every single concern of your life you cast upon him. When you're sick, you cast it upon him. Even if it's a stuffy nose for a day, I hear some of you sniffling. If it's that, you cast your cares upon him. If you're lonely, if you're concerned, if you're worried, if you don't like your body, your weight, that test that's happening this week, the money that's not coming in, the job, you got a hangnail and it's bothering you. I mean, the most minuscule detail of your life, turn it over to the Lord. Because He cares for you. I was reading this story this week of a pastor in Texas named Matt Carter. And uh, I think it's it's actually in the midst of him discussing this because at the very base level of what's happening here, and I want you to catch this, all right, is that Jesus is meeting someone in the midst of their grief providing comfort for them in the midst of that. And so when I'm talking about the small details of your life, don't miss the fact that God is also in the big details and cares deeply about that. And if you're lonely or you're missing someone or you're missing some opportunity or things are happening in your life and you feel overwhelmed by it at times, you can lay your cares on him. I was, uh, again, reading the story about Matt Carter. Matt Carter's a pastor. And he was talking about that when he was 11 years old, he was in a Southern Baptist church sitting in a pew. And uh, they sang a song that many of you know, many of you have been around, called Because He Lives, right? You know that song. Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. I know Because I Know Who Holds the Future. Life is worth the living because he lives. He says, while they're singing that, while they're singing that, he's sitting next to his mom. He's 11 years old. And his mom bends down and he says, I still don't know why she did this. May not be completely appropriate to tell an 11-year-old this right now at this moment. But she leans over while that song finishes and says, when I die, bury me in a red dress and sing that song. He's like, okay, he's 11, right? And so years later, she passed away and he said, guess what we did? We buried her in a red dress and at the funeral we sang that song. He said, a few weeks later, I had to go on a mission trip to Belize. He said, I really didn't want to go, but he said, I was like, all right, I'm going to go. And he said, they'd had a really hard week. And as sometimes happens on mission trips, and this is probably in the best mission trip kind of a plug that we can give, but sometimes what happens on mission trips is you come in and you've hit that wall and your limit is done. And the people that you are there with that week realize this is the only week they've got you. And they're like, hey, this guy came up to him and said, pastor, I'm taking, I'm, I'm going out to the village. There are a couple of villages out there in the jungle that we haven't got to yet. We're not going to get to them if we don't go tonight. I'm going out there tonight and I'm going to take anybody that wants to go with me. We're going to go witnessing out there. Does anybody want to go? And he said, being the pastor, I thought, well, I better say yes. So they went. He said, we got to the jungle, literally. He said, we walked into the jungle, into kind of this thick area, and there were two trails. And he said, as God said, hey, there's a, there's a village right over here, about a half a mile down here. There's a village about half a mile down here. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'm going to take the village over here. You take the village over there. I'll see you in a little bit. And he walked off. So Matt Carter said he found himself in the jungles of Belize going to a village by himself. He said, I went to several. He says, there was no electricity. There's no light. They had a fire out in the middle of everything. And everybody was kind of in their, in their mud huts around the fire, right? So he said, I started going 
He said, I guess door to door, you know, shed to shed, hut to hut, right? And he starts getting no response. Nobody was listening. And he said, I literally got to the point, I think I talked to everybody in that town, and nobody even gave me time of day. And so I walked back to the meeting spot and thought, I'll just stay here and wait for the guy to get back. He said, while he was there, suddenly this teenage boy ran up to him and said, Mr., Mr., and he said, yes. He said, I heard you were telling people about Jesus. I want to know about him. And so he began to share the gospel with this boy. And after a few minutes, the boy said, I want to accept Jesus. And he prayed with him right there to accept Christ. He gave him some information about who to get in contact with, where he could look over the next few days. And then the boy kind of walked away. And he said, in that moment, he said, I was rejoicing with the Lord. But all of a sudden, I thought, I wish I could call my mom to tell her about this. He said, it was always the kind of thing we talked about. And he said, while he was waiting there, another man walked up to him. And he said, this man walked up and walked right straight up to him. It didn't say a word. He said he had a guitar on his back. So he said, I started to make conversation with him. And I said, hey, man, like, uh, you play? And he goes, yes. And he said, what kind of music do you play? And he said, I play all kinds of music. And he said, all right. He said, why don't you play me something? He said, well, what do you want me to play? He goes, I don't know. You choose whatever you want to choose. So the guy pulls his guitar around and starts to sing because he lives. He said, I, he said, I don't remember what happened after that. He said, because I literally broke down right there in the jungles of Belize. And he said, this is what I thought. Of the millions of songs he could have picked, that's the one he picked. And he said, I knew without a doubt that God was telling me, I see you. I know the despair you're in. And I'm with you. Jesus on the cross is looking at his mother and his closest friend. And he says, the only one that stayed with him. And he says, I see you. I understand your grief. And I'm with you. Take care of each other. Man, isn't it awesome that we serve a God that cares that intimately about every single one of us? And when he does, you can give him whatever is happening in your life. Jesus told us that. He said, come to me, all you are weary and have heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let me ask you a question this morning. What burden do you have in your life that you need to give to the Lord? What struggle do you have in your life? That you need to give the Lord. What do you have going on in your life that you thought is too small to tell God about? Or to worry Him about? He doesn't have the time to think about it. Or He doesn't have the energy. Because He's got all the time and energy in the world. Literally. What do you need to lay at His feet? What sin has been pestering you that you need to get rid of? And you need to turn over to the Lord? What is it in your life that you need to give to Him? Big or small? Let's pray together.